My name is Umer. I'm Veronica. And I'm Remy. You're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. Which is an eco-socialist podcast. Based in Toronto. This episode is going to follow up on a discussion about Western Canada that we had on the podcast a couple months ago. This time around, we're going to get into chatting about Wexit, equalization payments, resource development, and a few other things as well. Um, well, why don't we start with Wexit, I guess? What do we want to say about Wexit? What's going on there? The name is horrible. Wexit is a, a very off-putting word. It just doesn't sound good in any way. Yeah. Well, Brexit, and then I guess this started with Grexit, which is also mm. an ugly word. But They're just getting yeah. worse yeah. as they go on. So you guys are uh, Westerners, and as an Ontarian, I don't know very much about what this whole history of Western alienation, as it's called, is, and you know how it's related to this most recent discussion that's flared up about the exit of Western Canada, or is it just Alberta from the Canadian Federation? So maybe if you guys want to tell us a little bit about Western alienation. I mean... A lot of people have approached me recently feeling as though this is kind of a new phenomenon, and it definitely isn't. Um, I've never grown up in an Alberta that hasn't had this Western alienation um, narrative or phenomenon, and it's almost as old as the province itself. Um, we start to see it become kind of a political phenomenon as early as the 1930s under the social credit government, and it's generally all about the same thing normally about Alberta having autonomous control over its resources and a belief that the federal government is trying to overstep Alberta's boundaries while simultaneously not fairly representing Alberta in confederation in the federal government. So it's taken a few different iterations through the decades with different parties, but it's been a lingering phenomenon throughout Alberta politics. At certain moments, it's had more literal political traction. I think in the 80s or 90s, they actually came up with a movement that led to a party, uh, the Separation Party of Alberta. And then that dissipated a little bit with Harper. And now with the Trudeau government, especially with the very old rivalry between Alberta and the Trudeau family, uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau as well, um, that just brought up all this old resentment. And I think that enhanced kind of the re-emergence of separatism as an idea in Alberta. I don't know, however, how much this sentiment is currently felt in these other Western provinces. So is it really Wexit, Western exit, or is it um, Alberta separatism exclusively? What can we call that? Can we come up with a name right now? I don't think the A works. The, a, the a makes it not Vowels work. don't really. Yeah. All right. Okay. We'll leave, it. we'll leave yeah. it with Wexit yeah. then. Well, um, like I think one one difference now between let's say like the 1990s, uh, like the Western alienation was, if you look at the roots of that, like the reform wasn't rejecting just like Eastern Canada or the Liberal Party, but also the Progressive Conservative Party, right? So there was. So wait, just clarify. Just when you say reform, you're talking about the Reform Party. The Reform Party, yeah. Okay, and, the, and then uh, later the Canadian Alliance. So they were, you know, they were rooted sort of in this idea of like Western alienation and. 
but they were also rebelling against the old uh, PC party, right? And so they eventually like overtook them when the PC party collapsed. So I think like one difference now though is that because there's like a a single conservative party, uh, I'm not sure like really what political form that something like Wexit could take, mm-hmm. you know, on like in terms of federal politics or then also provincial politics because the same people who support Wexit probably support the United Conservative Party. There is no wild rose now to mm-hmm. um, channel that kind of discontent. So like the that discontent that's coming from like Western alienation uh, is now being channeled into um, the existing uh, conservative parties, right? Because they the merger of these two separate parties. So I'm not sure if like what that would look like, you know, in terms of having an impact politically. Because I don't see how they would be able to do something similar to um, like the Bloc Quebecois or whether there's any kind of appetite for another reform type movement starting um, or another Wild Rose movement starting, right? So, Yeah, and I think given the outcome of the federal election, all of the people who are advocating for this Wexit, for them, they see the Conservative Party as it is, as their representative. And they think, oh, it represents Alberta. Alberta's conservative um, against the federal government. So they don't actually have a separate movement or a separate identity outside of the usual conservative party, which they had been identifying with previously as well. So just to go back, Veronica, you said that, or at least as I understood it, historically, the roots of Western alienation are in a kind of resource nationalism or a resource sub-nationalism. Um, the very first separatist manifestations were over more finance element, but then they very quickly went into oil. So I think that is pretty fair. Originally, it was because social credit was trying to implement social credit policies, and the federal government said that wasn't constitutional. Mm-hmm. Um, the separatists, however, were kind of tampered by the premier, um, Aberhart, William Aberhart. Um, however, right after that, There was pressure, and the military apparently got involved, pressure for Alberta to be selling its oil to the United States, which Mm -hmm. it didn't want to. So the irony now is it's the same argument, but of course now Alberta wants to be selling all of its oil everywhere, and the conspiracy or the belief is that everyone else is preventing them from selling their oil. But right from the 1940s, it has been over what Alberta gets to do essentially with its oil. Well, and the kind of spark for this most recent iteration of Western alienation is equalization payments, right? The passing of the legislation that would take the existing equalization payment formula uh, into the future. So until 2024, right? That's that's what happened. And then Jason Kenney, the premier of Alberta, started complaining about it. He had this really intense tweet and, and him saying like, I'm a Canadian patriot, you know, and Canada means everything to me, but what Justin Trudeau and the federal government are doing, you know, it's going to lead to separatist sentiment in Alberta. And and then, you know, the whole thing about him wanting to have a referendum now on equalization payments and whether Alberta wants in on this. While, of course, the irony is that it was while Jason Kenney was a cabinet minister in Stephen Harper's government that the existing equalization formula was implemented. And it's now, it's just being, you know, passed along. As far as I understand, the Trudeau government has done nothing to amend it. It was Harper that did. So Kenny now is just, you know, it seems to me like it's just kind of political theater. Mm-hmm. And Kenny knows what he, he's just doing this yeah. to rile up. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, equalization payments have always 
been kind of the main thing when I was growing up that people would talk about mm -hmm. in regards to this alienation. And there was a lot of resentment where the idea is Alberta is paying so much and we don't reap any of the rewards. So that's always the, the language that was around with it. But of course, Kenny was a part of the federal government. He's from Ontario. He's obviously manipulating things for his own benefit. It doesn't actually correspond with any legitimate feelings or, or care for Alberta. It's all just this kind of staged performance of, I'm standing up for Alberta. I'm the one that cares about regular working people, all that. Should we maybe talk about what equalization payments are and how they work? Like equalization payments are really so that provinces that can't generate as much uh, revenue through taxation are able to pay for essential services like healthcare and things. So they're not getting extra money or anything. It's just to ensure that all the different provinces are able to pay for their services. Yeah. This is what's like kind of interesting though about the, well, there's a few things, you know, like the the possibility of something like a Quebec Quebecois and like, or like Quebec separatism, you know, is there like a potential alliance or something there overlap with, you know, Alberta uh, separatism or, you know, in some ways of, you know, they both want, let's say, strengthening the uh, position of the provinces versus the federal government. But because so much of the Alberta sort of vitriol is aimed at like Quebec specifically, it doesn't seem like that's like a possible political anything yeah. there. Because it's like um, like the one other province which there might be some overlap when it comes to separatist sent sentiments. That's the province that Alberta seems to really, um, you know, and I was actually reading this other poll, and, and the province that wants Alberta to separate the most is Quebec. Is Quebec, yeah, yeah, more than Alberta. Yeah, <laughs> like quite quite a bit more. Yeah, there's. So. It's strange because there are actually a number of francophone communities in Alberta, but there's always been a strong anti-Quebec and anti-francophone sentiment around. Um, at least when I was growing up. Well, is is the anti-francophone sentiment in Alberta sort of similar to what you have in? the rest of Anglophone Canada, including Ontario, which is sort of this generalized idea that like, oh, these French people, they're always complaining, you know? I mean, people don't really have a, a developed opinion on it. It's just like, oh yeah, you know, Quebec, so they're always complaining. Yeah, is that is that it or? I think it mostly is. Um, I only know really the Alberta experience from when mm -hmm. I was growing up, but it does seem like that. It's um, just really superficial, petty complaints about yeah what they perceive as French or Quebecois um, or just Quebec as a province. I mean, I think maybe one difference in Ontario is that, or from Ontario, is that the other provinces, you know, when you hear this, you know, oh, Quebec, they're always complaining, et cetera, et cetera. But there is this idea that, oh, Quebec gets whatever it wants. It does whatever it wants. You know, like, why don't we get, you know, what, like, maybe oh, why right. don't we get that? Yeah. Whereas like, that probably doesn't exist in like the Ontario-Quebec relationship. Like that's probably um, has, you know, some other specific elements. Right, right. And then like in, in the form of what happens with the equalization payments where Alberta, which is a have province. Is it still a have province or is it? Uh... Yeah, because it's based on fiscal capacity. So like the capacity that the province has to generate revenue and Alberta just doesn't generate, think, yeah. it, it, you know, it refuses to do so. Yeah, it doesn't, yeah. yeah, it doesn't yeah. Uh, tap into the the tax pools yeah. that it could. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's what I was worried about. Yeah. yeah, like this, yeah. So then even now, Alberta ends up being a half province because of its resource wealth. It's above the national average when it comes to being able to raise revenue. Yeah. And so then it has to give in to the, the pool of uh, federal money yeah. that 
that's given to the have-not provinces. Yeah. Um, and this is a basic principle of Canadian Federation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably it's the material basis for it, which which allows the have-not provinces to make sure that the services that they provide are are up to standard with the rest of the country. So the idea that uh, Albertans, well, and I don't know that how widespread this sentiment is. I mean, obviously it's used uh, to rile people up, especially by the right in Alberta. That, you know, but, but this idea that like, oh, we shouldn't be giving in to the equalization formula. This is somehow oppressive to Alberta. Like, well, yeah, I'm sorry, but. It's also worth noting that oil royalties were just completely slashed to almost nothing. So the resources that Alberta does have, it could be making a lot better use of it. Um, Alberta, until recently, had its own citizens paying healthcare premiums. At the time, it was against the rules, um, and we did get rid of those. But they were making Albertans pay to receive the healthcare that they're supposed to be guaranteed, while simultaneously not taking advantage of all this oil extraction. But Alberta has greater access to these resources that it's just not making any use of. And then it's low taxes and the refusal to increase taxes as well. I mean, Alberta, I think, is the only province that doesn't have a sales tax, like a provincial sales tax. Mm-hmm. Not that, oh, right, yeah. yeah. Not that sales I'm, I'm more okay with that, but it's, yeah. Yeah, because sales taxes are, are regressive, regressive taxes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you know, it could have like a low sales tax and raise, you know, billions of dollars in revenue, it could have a a better royalty system, like you said, mm-hmm. and raise more re- revenue from the oil extraction. Yeah, it could do all of those things, but it's not doing that. Instead, it's now, of course, the UCP government um, under Jason Kennedy, it, Kenny, not Jason Kennedy, <laughs> uh, since, and under Jason Kenney is, uh, is slashing the budget. Well, yeah. I mean, for, so in, in terms of something like Wexit then, like what's the, I mean, do people think that it has um, any kind of like staying power? Is it because, you know, the election just happened? Like what does it, you know, translate into? Like it's not like the conservatives can pick up more seats in Alberta. That's not, that's not possible. You know, it doesn't seem like because of the particular character of it, it's not something that can generally spread towards other Western provinces in the same way that the reform of the Canadian lines, you know, were able to slowly increase their influence. So I'm not sure like what the, sort of the result of something like this because it could like it's not going to be something which reflects a rising real possibility of Alberta separatism. Like I don't think that's mm-hmm. can I anywhere on the Can I just say like I wish it would. <laughs> just yeah. speaking as like a a commonplace Ontarian. Yeah. Like, See that's what that's would, what everyone else yeah. says about Quebec. That's the just Do just they? leave. Yeah. Do that's they? the yeah. standard thing. It's like I, just yeah. leave. I wouldn't say that about yeah. Quebec. Yeah. But about Alberta, I mean, this is ridiculous. You know, oh, you know, Justin Trudeau doesn't care about Alberta. Excuse me. Yeah. This asshole bought a fucking pipeline. I know exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Just so yeah. you your shitty crude oil could be shipped to yeah. China or whatever it's going. Yeah. Well, that's what's. I mean, that's what's kind of funny is mm-hmm. even there in, in the lead up to the Alberta election, this criticism of Notley, like, yeah, like oh, she didn't do like what what she could not have done more mm-hmm. bending over backwards for pushing oil mm-hmm. and the liberal like trudeau bought the pipeline like that's yeah. like i'm not sure what else you know like clearly there's not like a federal government couldn't have done uh much more outside of what sending in like the troops into <laughs> like bc like what are like it's there was there's not really anything that could have been done but it's just um yeah i mean it's just been like obviously posturing the the mm-hmm. whole time but now you have someone like you know the ucp 
or the federal conservatives, you know, if they're trying to like foster this Alberta, you know, separate, but it doesn't like, it's like, I, I, don't, I don't see what it can mm-hmm. lead to because they're already in, they can't be more dominant in that region in terms of federal or, or a provincial, like a political level than they already are. Right. And even at the height of kind of the separatist movement in Alberta, it, it didn't amount to anything. It was still a fringe movement. So it really just seems like it kind of is just used as a threat. Like when you had that, um, I think it was the CEO of Husky Corporation um, saying, oh, if Trudeau gets elected, if this happens, there's going to be a lot of separatist sentiment in the province. Yeah. And it, it just gets used that way. There's no real mobilization around it. I think I've heard that a few want to make some sort of Wexit party, but so far I haven't heard that that's actually happened. Yeah, I feel like it's just like six guys on the internet. I mean, I think they, I think I saw, uh, <laughs> base, I think I saw a picture of their, the first, like the the first meeting of like, well, said, there was actually more people than expected, but they were pretty much like what you would, what you would expect. <laughs> mm-hmm. <Maybe>. I mean, <laughs> the, the online presence might be um, a few different people with a lot of different email accounts. Yeah. Um, uh, but okay, so I know I, I kind of um, uh, came out a bit strong there. This is why this is a roots of Western alienation. I was just doing it because I do think that one can understand why people in Ontario would feel and people across Canada would feel yeah. this way about uh, this particular instance of of Western alienation or whatever this Wexit thing yeah. is, because it's ridiculous. Yeah. But but I, I do want to be fair. And as socialists, right, we we do want to sort of inhabit the position of, of even the people who we have disagreements with. Uh, if there is, as you're saying, Veronica, a generalized sense in Alberta that, okay, we Albertans, we're not equal partners or whatever in the Canadian Federation. And if it's just oil, Alberta's sort of subnational identity around this oil, then how are we going to get people to abandon yeah. that? Is that possible? Well, the Kenny government is trying to make it impossible to imagine anything different. And I think what's interesting still with this idea of the separation is I don't know how much of the desire to separate for the average person who is listening to this really comes from oil Mm -hmm. or if the idea of oil and resources is just the way that it gets manipulated Mm. um, into convincing these people that this issue is there. Because when... People um, are polled about whether they agree with first-past-the-post versus proportional representation. Even the Alberta conservatives, um, conservative voters, I should say, they are dissatisfied with the representation system. And a lot of the kind of regular people, when they talk about Western alienation, it more is something they see that needs to be addressed kind of electorally in terms of how we vote, how we have representation. But um, people like those in the UCP government are trying very, very hard to force the conversation in certain ways. And they're doing everything they can to ensure that oil stays relevant, even if they have to cut all funding to any alternative energy projects. Um, So all those projects get cut, all the conversation around it is then accused of being, what does Kenny call it? Foreign-funded radical propaganda, essentially. He, he uses foreign-funded a lot. Um, so the UCP is framing any 
criticism of the oil industry, um, they frame it as people essentially being paid off by foreign rivals. There's a strange conspiracy that argues that the federal government, the NDP, all of Alberta's environmentalists, people in BC, they're all working together. They've been tricked or paid off because they don't want Alberta to succeed in marketing its oil. They're trying to help the international market. They're trying to help the Americans. And they believe that a lot are either um, American companies funding these people or Saudi companies funding these people. That's, yeah, like the, in terms of, you know, like sort of right-wing criticisms of environmentalism, that's always been like a very standard kind of mm-hmm. um, idea. As, you know, okay, these are foreign funded or, you know, funded from the city people. You know, like it's, it's always, you know, this idea that these, some like elite conspiracy mm-hmm. and I guess- Big oil is not like, you know, not the, the end. It's like yeah, big it's environment. It's big yeah. science or something like that, right? Or foreign oil. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, you'll hear people complaining about alleged hypocrisy of, you know, Toronto drivers who hate Alberta oil, but they'll pump their tanks full of Saudi oil. And they actually believe that this is what people are thinking when they're yeah. in the city, when they're in the east, or if they just dare to criticize the pipeline, that they're also willing to just take all this Saudi oil and they just hate Alberta's oil. It's it's In interesting and strange. Well, yeah, because the na- part of the narrative is that Canadian oil is clean oil mm-hmm. in the sense that the human rights record that Canada has mm-hmm. compared to somewhere like Saudi Arabia is, is really great. And I mean, comparatively, uh, sure. Women, yeah, and, and no women environmentalist can... is standing up for Saudi Arabia. Yeah, but it's not as if, you know, like the record of resource development, including oil, is is very not like the human rights abuses. You know, you can certainly talk about the the way that indigenous communities are are treated, mm-hmm. um, and that's certainly not clean in any way. So, yeah, you have to kind of gloss over a lot of that. Yeah, to pretend that Canadian oil is clean. And- One thing that I was sort of thinking about the other day is, um, you know, so when we look at, so one of the questions we asked is, okay, how do we Try to respond to you know the the real anxieties of people in Alberta, uh, you know not just wanting to like dismiss you know like the Alberta working class. Um, and then so last time you know we we had talked about imagining alternatives to so the possibility for you know moving away from oil and like, what does that look like. And I was thinking about like the American case and how like the capacities of the American state to do something like the Green New Deal are, are very real. Like the U.S. has almost the federal government really wanted to pursue a, a green new deal ag- agenda the capital that they have at their you know is they they can they can actually fully like fund this this kind of project is that is that a possibility in the canadian case like does the canadian state have the capital to be able to uh, pursue a green new deal in the same way that the american state does and if it doesn't then what is then then what does a sort of like a green transformation um, look like it would have to be something that has to be dragged over the longer term, has to be less ambitious. Um, so I was kind of thinking, like, what are the different capacities for the state to to be able to, um, you know, pursue this kind of project? Yeah, it seems the kind of Green New Deal that is necessary. Of course, it'll be com- it would be very difficult even for a left government, central left government, like a Sanders administration, to implement in the U.S. Despite the capacities of the American state. But also because of the kind of conditions under which that government would come into power yeah. and the the kind of bureaucracy that exists and the internal power struggles that would have to be engaged with within the state, 
um, and with capital, it would be very difficult. But having said that, like I would say, of course, we have much more capacity than what we're currently trying to do, which is yeah. right now we're doing, you know, yeah, and and and, and when come, yeah, and when it comes to like capacity, so I think that like that because that that's an argument that people have made about the limitations of like Canadian capital, why it's needed more like foreign uh, companies. But I think like for example, just you know the fact that the government the government did just throw four and a half billion dollars into into buying this pi- pipeline. That that you know if if that amount of money went into something that we consider like green energy, that mm-hmm. would be, you know, obviously that would be like a huge, um, huge sum. So when, you, so when you do want, so people do want to make the argument, oh, that, you know, the Canadian state doesn't have um, capacity or is, you know, is maybe it's capital starved. I think there are plenty, probably like a lot of good examples to show. Well, actually it's all, it is about, like you said, like about what are we actually doing and what can we do um, instead? Yeah. So I think we have to dispel a bit of a myth that we have around that and see that the Canadian state isn't just incapable of doing all these things because we're a smaller country population-wise with smaller means. Our governments are very deliberately making these choices, and Canada is a very broadly conservative country in terms of how the state behaves. Um, Even, I think it was the LNG pipeline, um, the NDP government is willing to subsidize that as well. Yeah. So... Yeah, BCNDP is fully behind LNG. Yeah. Earlier this year, they they'd cut uh, like a twenty five percent tax cut for LNG producers. And the minister, when you know, asked like, you know, what's the reason behind this? It was, you know, what did she say? Um, eliminate barriers for investment, which is like the same thing that you would, you could hear from any, pretty much any party, right? So yeah. you know, when it comes to you know governance. We've seen you in, in in the NDP in both like the BC and Alberta situation, like the you do find that in you know when it comes down to it, like sometimes they can be in, uh, indistinguishable from um, you know what you'd expect from like a liberal party or a mm-hmm. conservative party even. Yeah, so just for our listeners maybe who don't know, LNG is liquefied natural gas, and this is an issue in BC. Yeah, and and the also the the support of um, the Site C Dam in in BC. So for um, like like the NDP, a lot of these projects that they had criticized before when the Liberals uh, were in power, they you know they seem to be pretty much fully on board now that they're in um, in government. You know they're basically pursuing the very the similar kinds of approaches that the Liberals had had offered. And I think when it comes to even the BC NDP's opposition to the pipeline, I think a lot of that has been because they're locked into this. Um, sort of strange alliance with the Greens, mm-hmm. and if that that hadn't been the case, I'm not sure if the the um, NDP provincial government in BC would still be as sort of against this particular the particular pipeline in um, in in Burnaby. Right. Yeah. On that note, too, um, when we saw with the Alberta NDP, they were funding alternative energy and trying to extend the breadth of where Alberta can find resources and work and all those things. But as we saw, they were so adamant still about the pipeline. And that, to me, in part two, just shows how gripped everyone in power is by these oil companies, by these lobbies and these these interests. Or just the, or the general idea, like I think you know, mm. the idea we have to remove barriers uh, to investment, to like investment, the, the yeah. general idea. I think that that's something that you know the NDP, Liberals, Conservatives, all these various parties have all basically they 
all seem to have this um you know this logic mm-hmm. that is what's uh what what needs to be uh, yeah exactly yeah so i mean all, all of this you know you guys are just making me think oil it's it's such a corrupting force you know in our civilization like what a horrible thing what have we done <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, even when you look at plastic and its origins are in petroleum and just in the last not even century and how that's so greatly damaged our environment. Just once we became so dependent on everything oil, the the results have been catastrophic. Yeah, I mean, I'm not even thinking about the environmental costs. Like I'm just thinking about like the kind of political culture mm-hmm. um, that it seems to throw up, right? Reliance on on resource development. Like, I just keep thinking Alberta is sort of like Canada, Saudi Arabia. Mm. Uh, it's a little mini petro state. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and it's like, why is the Saudi state and the Gulf states in general, why are they like this horrible rot, you know, on the planet? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of stuff, I guess, has been written about the relationship between states that rely on single resource development, or partic- particularly oil and what that does for you know the relationship between like society state between like the government and 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 the industry um basically allows it to allows the government to like generate uh revenue without actually like developing a civil society or a what do you call it like a more like more like cl- complex um economy yeah mm-hmm. like a manufacturing yeah, yeah, base yeah, and whatnot yeah. actually it becomes difficult to do so because yeah. of the so-called dutch disease yeah but do you okay, so this will maybe be going back. Do you guys remember the um it was during the lead up to I guess the two thousand fifteen uh federal election? I, I think it was when Tom Marker was yeah, yeah. was the leader. I remember and this. and it was even the debate of are you are you allowed to say Canada has are you allowed to suggest Canada has Dutch disease? Because if you do that, then you're basically the narrative was, you know, okay, now this is anti-Alberta, anti-Canada, anti-oil. So it wasn't even just... Well, first we should say what the Dutch disease is. Okay, like, so what, I mean, do we have a... (laughs) Yeah, so my understanding of it is that it's an economic phenomenon. It's named after the experience that the Dutch had when they found uh, natural gas in the North Sea, and they began to extract this and export it. And as a result, because of the high demand for the currency at the time was uh, guilders, right, uh, that the Netherlands had, um, because they were exporting so much of this resource, uh, the other parts of the economy suffered because the guilder appreciated appreciated in value. And so it became more expensive for people outside of the Netherlands to try to buy manufactured goods from the Netherlands. And so manufacturing in the Netherlands therefore suffered. Um, And this is a common problem with uh, resource-dependent economies. Mm -hmm. They they aren't really able to develop the manufacturing capacities that that other economies might have. I think it's just worth pointing out that Alberta, with its dependency on oil, only has four oil refineries. So it likes to talk all about how much it's producing, but most of what gets produced has to be shipped elsewhere to be refined, and most of that goes to the states anyway. And um, yeah, just getting if we want to continue with just with like the Dutch disease aspect for a second. So yeah, like in the in in that particular political sort of case, it was this idea that because of you know the rising dollar, it's hurting like Ontario manufacturing uh, specifically. So the criticisms uh, about you know if you talk about Dutch, you're pitting 
Alberta workers against Ontario workers. And, you know, you're sacrificing Alberta's workers for, for Ontario's workers. So this was, it kind of got the narrative that was emerging from, you know, critics of this idea was that, oh, this is just another case of Canada operating, you know, for the benefit of Ontario. Ontario is the, the first priority, you know, and if that hurts Alberta and Alberta workers, like that's, uh, that's fine. So, so that, even that debate, it took the form of regionalism and this idea that Canada is, you know, just Ontario, uh, mm. Ontario centric. Well, and it shows too, like the, you know, in, in Canada, like how regionalism very often adds as sort of like this blunting force to um, critiques of like businesses or industries or whatever, like, or, you know, class politics, social politics, but like the, the region, like it, it, the incorporation of sort of regionalist language, regional sentiments and like sentiments and pitting, you know, one region against the other, whether it's, you know, between provinces or east-west or, you know, urban, uh, rural, that's, you know, or like the coast or interior, that like a lot of the debates within the Canadian context very often end up taking a a regional um, Mm -hmm. uh, character. And that's, you know, and we can see like that's problematic for so many different reasons, but like in terms of how to develop, um, if we talk about like, you know, something like socialist strategy or socialist uh, practices that has been one of the things that's been identified as, um, you know, having blunted uh, the development of socialist politics or or class politics in Canada. Well, on that note, should we maybe uh, wrap up this segment and continue the discussion in the next one? Okay. Sure. All right. So we're going to continue chatting about. Western Canada, and our Patreon supporters will get access to the second segment of our discussion next week. Remember that you can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash oatsforbreakfast and becoming a patron. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.